0: Hello, and welcome to everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Catherine Fox. I'm a philanthropic investment advisor here at Arden Casina, a Portland-based investment advisory firm bringing our unique and disciplined process and philosophy to high worth individuals and families, as well as nonprofit endowments and funding. Our goal is to build legacy, and part of that includes planning to ensure your family's legacy is protected from any eventuality. Planning for end of life or other unforeseen events is deeply important. Making sure that family members are prepared and know how to access the information and contacts they will need and what processes to follow. Today, I'm here as part of Arnold Messina's planning team along with Senior Wealth Strategist and Investment Advisor, Glenn Gobelin and Senior Investment Advisor, Melody Bank, both of whom have spent decades working with clients to build strategies to grow and protect their legacy. Glenn and Melody are here today to share some of their deep insights and knowledge. Glenn and Melody, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Thanks, Catherine. We like to start with a discussion about the legal structures and processes around end-of-life planning. Glenn has a great deal of knowledge and experience working with clients through this process. So, Glenn, I've heard you talk with our clients about how account registrations and titling of assets is key when there's an emergency. Would you walk our listeners through this process and how it functions when someone is incapacitated? Uh, sure,
1: Catherine, thanks for asking. Um, I think the most common in which our clients hold assets between a married couple is generally is joint tenancy. Um, and in that case, when there is some sort of disability or, um, or some sort of disabling event, there's nothing that really happens there. The, the other owner can generally do what he or she um, pleases with the asset. Things get more complicated when you go into the other two areas of property ownership. So that being those that you own by a contract and then those that you own outright. It's pretty straightforward with the joint tenancy stuff. On the contract side, the most common contracts that our clients have ventured into are those that are either their IRAs or retirement accounts, which you may not realize is actually a contractual relationship when you set it up. Um, or you may have a life insurance policy or a trust. And so in a time of a disability, the the only thing that's really affected with an IRA is that the owner can no longer modify beneficiaries or make um, sort of decisions about the account when incapacitated. With a trust, things often get a little bit more uh, involved because there's commonly an issue with trustee successorship, and you may end up at your lawyer's office going into formally change the trustee succession in the event that somebody is disabled and it appears that they're not going to recover from that disability. Uh, Finally, life insurance may come into play if the policy has some sort of rider attached to it that will pay for care at some sort of long-term care facility. So if the individual is able to qualify with their disability, then you may run into um, an issue there where you could reach out to the life insurance carrier uh, and see what the contract said. The last area uh, is those items which we own in our own name, right? So we have our jointly held stuff. We have that which we own through contracts. And then finally, there's that bucket that has everything else. So this is bank accounts in your own names or this is maybe your belongings or anything else that's titled to you individually. These are generally handled in a disability period by the power of attorney. And so what we would advise clients to do there is really twofold. One is to be mindful of the fact that powers of attorney don't necessarily age that well. So um, I've been involved in situations where we were literally told that the document was too old. So um, if your powers of attorney are more than five or six years old, I would advise you to to consider having those updated. Then the other thing, uh, as you and I have dealt with a bunch of times internally, is that oftentimes the custodians and the banks will have their own power of attorney form. So even though you've got a shiny new document from your attorney, it may make sense to reach out to Schwab or Bank of America or wherever else you have your assets to make sure that they don't have their own paperwork.
0: And how do these different titling structures dictate what happens after someone dies?
1: Uh, Good question. And they're directly tied to the manner in which they're titled. So joint tenancy, uh, again, is probably the easiest. They're usually when a joint tenant passes away, the surviving tenant just needs to file a deed if it's a piece of property, or maybe file a death certificate with the bank to remove the other um, the other person's name on the account. That one's pretty easy. Um, the other two areas, the contracts and these everything else bucket, are a bit more complicated. On the contract side, um, with IRAs and life insurance policies, what you're usually dealing with at death is insurance beneficiary claim forms. So. Um, You ought to consider making sure that beneficiaries of of IRAs or life insurance policies know that they're out there and they know who to contact in the event that you pass away. Even if they don't know the dollar amounts involved, it can really um, speed the process when someone dies, at least if people know where they're supposed to look. And it's important to understand, too, that these contractual relationships pass outside of probate. So if you have a trust that has been funded during your lifetime, Then, when you pass away it's likely that your family will end up back at the lawyer's office to formally change trustees to get a new tax id number so that the trust can start paying its taxes because you're no longer alive to do so Um, and then finally you you will usually get a new document from the attorneys um, called a certificate of trust that evidences the fact that somebody passed away and the structure of the trust has changed some so with those contractual agreements there's a little bit more legwork involved the most legwork Uh, And my experience has been in in that last bucket, the sort of everything else. So the stuff that you own in your own name generally has to be retitled through the probate court. So your your executor will have to file your will, notify your heirs, prepare a schedule of the assets for the court to review. Whatever you can do to help your executor or your personal representative, those two are terms of art that are just switched out in different states. So don't be confused by the two, either a personal rep or an executor, it's the same job. Uh, whatever you can do to help that person get their arms around where your assets are um, after you're gone, it's just going to be really, really helpful in speeding up the process and saving your executor time and therefore probably saving your family and your heirs some legal fees going back and forth to the lawyer's office on it. So um, the, the only thing I would mention there as it relates to probate and trust and the relationship between the two of them is that If you do have everything inside of a trust and it's properly titled, then your family may never deal with the probate court. So um, I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but I think the takeaway for folks is that the manner in which things are titled has a real direct impact in how they are processed in a disability and certainly how they're processed when you pass away.
0: We've talked some here about wills, trusts and powers of attorney. In addition to those documents, are there other legal documents that families should consider executing?
1: Yeah, and I think if you do your estate plan with a competent attorney, then he or she will put together a handful of documents. Um, In addition to the ones we've talked about, uh, and the other ones that you'll commonly see included, there are a healthcare proxy and an advanced directive. Healthcare proxy is the document where we appoint somebody else to make medical decisions on our behalf in the event that we can't communicate them. And the advanced directive is the document where we provide instructions around the end of our lives as it relates to ventilation and being fed through a tube and that sort of thing. Uh, Many states like Oregon actually combine the two of them. So there's a healthcare proxy that is part of the Oregon advanced directive. It's a state prepared form that you can download on the internet. Um, Other states deal with it a little bit differently. You may actually end up with a healthcare power of attorney that is akin to the proxy, depending on what state you live in. So um, those are the main ones that you would deal with when you were leaving the attorney's office. Should you find yourself admitted to the hospital and in a situation where you have your capacity, then it's entirely likely that you'll see a physician's end of life statement put in front of you. These are generally pink documents that you fill out at at the hospital that will give doctors treating you uh, more contemporaneous feelings on, on your thoughts on um, how you'd like the end of your life to go should things, uh, should things need to go that direction. So uh, that's often called the Pulse. You may hear about that um, when you go to the hospital. But those are the main ones healthcare proxy, advanced directive, and then that physician statement uh, when you're actually admitted. And whether it's
0: a will or a healthcare proxy or a power of attorney, how should people think about choosing who is going to represent them uh, in each of these different capacities?
1: Uh, you know, that's probably the most difficult question for a lot of families as you think about this, because in some cases, you're really laying out a formal legal relationship that your children may be tied to for decades after you're gone. And so you really want to think about the skill sets and the ages of the folks that you're considering. Uh, I always tell people I should, the people that they know that are really good at math. Um, and who also really understand their family and the family values and the plan that mom or dad had had tried to put together. Um, I often see that families will outsource the sort of technical side of this and have a professional co-trustee and then have a family member serve in a role where they're handling more of the hands-on stuff um, with the beneficiaries. I think that that setup works really well. So um, the only sort of last bit of advice I would give you here from practice, Catherine, is that I've been involved in a couple of estates where mom or dad had an even number of children and just sort of left the kids equal powers. And I don't think that that tends to work very well. I think it sort of breeds infighting, um, but it also can put kids in a situation where there's no real tiebreaker to decide important questions about mom or dad's affairs. So generally, I think you ought to really think through when you're considering naming children for these different tasks, because it can be quite a burden for them to bear.
0: Thanks for all that information, Glenn. Now I wanna bring Melody into the conversation to talk about the initial planning process and how to make sure that your family is well-prepared in advance. Melody, at what point should you share with your spouse and or children what your wishes are? um, And is there a best way to start approaching this subject?
2: Thanks, Catherine, and, and that's an excellent question. Um, I would recommend that you communicate all of your desires to your family or your representative and the more the better. However, if you're not comfortable sharing much information or detail at this point in time, that's fine. But at the very least, um, share uh, share your roadmap or your plan, if you will, with your representative and let them know at a minimum two things, who are your advisors attorney, CPA, investment advisor, et cetera, and where your legal documents are located. So uh, my advice would be to just at least start the process and communicate as soon as you feel comfortable. Uh, when we at, here at Arnold Messina develop a comprehensive financial plan for our clients, we include uh, contact information for all of the advisors and where to find the plan details. That's great advice, Melody. Um, Can you talk us through what
0: are some of the documents and information that you need to make sure family members can find?
2: Sure. Um, We've created a checklist uh, for end of life and or disability planning to help guide this process, which outlines the documentation and information to share with your family members or your representative. Initially, um, again, the contact information for your advisors and where your documents are located. Um, Having access to your computer, cell phone, email, other digital records or um, uh, paper files and records. So, you know, where's all that located? And then um, finally, how to gain access to your financial information. For example, banking, other financial accounts, Real assets, utilities, property titles, insurance, etc. and gaining access um, to the incoming mail. Um, Please contact your Arnrich Messina advisor with any questions or guidance on how to customize your own checklist or roadmap. A lot
0: of Detail to maintain in one place. Can you share best practices for storing and managing all of that information?
2: Yeah, sure. A um, couple thoughts here. Um, first of all, the law firm um, who's uh, drafted your legal documents will have a copy. Um, second of all, you can store them at home in a fire fireproof box, a safe, or perhaps a safety deposit box. Um, and there are also digital storage vaults available. Um, For example, Arnrich Messina provides a secure client portal for each client where documents can be stored and with your authorization, we can give your family um, member representative or other professional advisors a login to be able to access um, your documents and your roadmap.
0: To wrap us up, are there any other last things that people should be thinking about as they uh, process all of the information that you two have shared during this podcast?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a couple of thoughts here as well. Um, something to think about, is there anything in your home, any personal effects, um, digital files, anything that you don't want your children or your family to find? Um, consider getting rid of anything that you don't want them to know about. It could be pictures, old letters, uh, any, any number of, of, of things out there. And then secondly, um, I learned this about 10 years ago um, for an, an, from an attorney when I was um, acting as trustee for my grandfather's um, estate, and that's how to deal with incoming mail. Um, the advice that I was given is do not forward their, ad, their mail to your personal residence. Um, you will never get rid of their junk mail. So the advice that I was given is open a post office box for say roughly six, anywhere from six to 18 months, just depends on the complexity of the estate. But once the estate is settled, then you can just um, no longer renew or get rid of um, the post office um, box. Um, Glenn, do you have other um, thoughts on this topic as well?
1: Uh, you know, Melody, the one that jumps out to me, and I think the area in which the practices changed the most um, in the couple of decades that I've been doing this stuff is that we've gone from living in a very paper world to a very electronic one. And I think a lot of folks don't read the fine print when they sign on to those electronic agreements and are often sort of surprised when they find out what they say. And the case that jumps out the most to me is there was a, a, a US service member that was killed in Afghanistan um, by a roadside bomb and his family had to fight all the way to the Supreme Court to get access to his Gmail. Uh, the case was called In Ray Ellsworth and uh, Mr. Ellsworth's family uh, was trying to get access to his private communications and Google said no. And eventually they ended up giving him a CD that had a, a copy of the emails on it, but they never granted him access to that account. And so um, understand that you, we sign licensing agreements with all of these different things when we sign up for them. And those licensing agreements determine what happens when we die. And so as soon as Facebook is notified of your death. And there is a set a group of things that happen. And the same thing happens with all your social media. So you made a comment earlier, Melody, about making sure folks have passwords. And I think that's um, that's really important, especially immediately after somebody passes, for you to be able to go in um, and access some things before they're all locked down can sometimes be hugely beneficial. So that would be, I guess my last thought on the topic would be just make sure that, um, somebody has access to those accounts, especially in this day and age where we're going through a pandemic where folks' health is really turned you know, sideways quickly, it really would make a lot of sense to communicate some of this stuff now to folks, just so that you're prepared in case something were
0: to happen.
2: Great advice. Thanks,
0: Thanks so much, Melody and Glenn, for sharing your insights on family financial preparedness. Do you have any final thoughts to share with us before we wrap up?
1: Thanks, Catherine. Um, I'm not sure that I do. Uh, Hopefully, this will help our listeners work with their families to make sure they're prepared and ready to carry out their wishes. Uh, I think one of the things that we do uh, take a great deal of pride in here at Arnorich Messina is the fact that we try to help sort of connect our uh, the professional advisors that our clients work with. So, if any of our clients are going through the process of revising their estate documents, I would encourage them to reach out to our team would happily join virtually in any of those meetings and come back uh, and make sure that our operations team has a clear plan on a clear picture, excuse me, on what your plan is and make sure accounts are registered properly and that sort of thing.
0: Thanks Glenn. For everyone out there listening, you can always visit our website at www.honorangecina.com for additional information about us. There you'll also find our blog, where we post frequently with relevant articles about financial planning topics, as well as myriad other subjects. I'd like to thank Glenn and Melody again for being here today, uh, as well as thank you, thanks to all of you out there who are listening in.
2: Thank you for listening to Arnrich Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information.